0: You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Desha. Today, we have a very special guest, Jeremy Drownfield, the author of The Boy Who Followed His Father to Auschwitz. Let's start with a little bit about you. I just finished reading The Boy Who Followed His Father to Auschwitz. So what inspired you to write this book?
1: Uh, Well, I came across it to to begin with uh, quite by accident. I was asked to help find a publisher for an English translation of uh, Gustav Kleinman's Concentration Camp Diary, which was originally published as part of a book with uh, Fritz's memoir in 1990s in German. Uh, a translation had been produced, and I was asked to help find a publisher for it. But with the best will in the world, we just couldn't place it anywhere because, I mean, as important as a, a historical document as it is, uh, it's, the, the diary is incredibly difficult to read. I and mean, Gustav didn't really write it with the intention of it being, well, even read by anyone. I think he, he partly wrote it to, to keep a handle, keep a grip on his own sanity so it's full of really obscure ref- sketchy references to people and places and events and I mean, even a holocaust historian would have struggled to understand quite a lot of it without consulting their reference books so i decided that the best thing i could do you know, because i felt that this was a you know this is an incredibly important story that needs to be told so i felt the best thing i could do for it was to bring my abilities as a, a researcher and a writer To it and write the story in a way that would be accessible to anyone.
0: It is the first part with the the boy Fritz in uh, He's Just Escaping Auschwitz, and that part was very emotional. And what I guess a lot of people don't know is when they saw the upcoming Red Army, they ended up just massacring a lot of people. Can you kind of explain what the Nazis typically did when? upon like getting caught or getting intercepted by the Red Army.
1: What, what happened in, with Auschwitz specifically was that, I mean, the world already knew what the Nazis were doing in the camps because the, the Soviets had already uh, uncovered uh, several of their camps, and especially Majdanek in Poland, which had uh, been uncovered in July 1944 and was a massive death camp. So the world already knew this, but the Nazis had two motives. Two things were were on their minds when the Soviets were marching towards Auschwitz. One was to uh, to cover up what they had been doing there, and the other was to preserve this huge labor force. So they accelerated exterminations. More than that, they were concerned with you know disposing of the bodies that were already around and destroying papers. Um, but they, they, they were most concerned to, to preserve this workforce, this vast workforce. So whenever at Auschwitz and, at, and, and virtually all the other concentration camps, when liberating forces were approaching, they began a, a massive evacuation. And in Auschwitz, that began on January the 17th, 1945. And the prisoners were marched westwards through the snow towards Germany, where they were going to be placed in uh, concentration camps on German soil. And some were sent south. And Gustav and Fritz Kleinman were among that batch. That they, they they marched to the next town, and then the prisoners were put on trains that were intended for the Mauthausen concentration camp in Austria. And This happened to concentration camps all over the Third Reich as the Soviets closed in from the East and the British and the Americans from the West, uh, various concentration camps were uncovered and mostly they were found almost empty with just a handful of survivors as the bulk of the prisoners were force marched in what became known as the death marches because they had such a high fatality rate. Uh, They marched east from east and north from Dachau. They marched west from Auschwitz. And they eventually, the bulk of them, the maximum number that the Nazis could manage to evacuate, ended up in Bergen-Belsen, famously. That was one of the last places to be found by the Allies, and it was an absolute hell on earth.
0: Is that one in modern-day Czech Republic?
1: Ah uh, Bergen-Belsen. No, uh, Bergen-Belsen is in Germany, we- oh, western okay. Western Germany, and that that was uh, that was liberated by the British in in April nineteen forty five. Mauthausen uh, was liberated by American forces in May
0: nineteen forty five. That's very interesting, and I guess what I get from the book is that it seems like this man Gustav lived. As a patriotic citizen of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, he had yeah. a n- normal life, and then suddenly everything appended. Was that your impression too, or?
1: Yeah, and, and Gustav thought of himself as, as Austrian before he thought of himself as Jewish. He had been born at a time when the Austro-Hungarian Empire was one of the great powers of Europe, and he was born in. What what in those days was the kingdom of Galicia?
0: Which, Ukraine, which, right? Which,
1: which, no, which uh, nowadays is part of southern Poland. In those oh, okay. days, was the, was the was the kingdom of Galicia within the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire? He served in the Austro-Hungarian army in the First World War. He sold very hard service. He was decorated for bravery. Uh, he's wounded several times, and he came. He came back to Vienna. He settled in Vienna. Came back there. At the end of the war, he'd married his girlfriend Tini, and they had four children: uh, Edith, born in 19 19, 19, nineteen nineteen, down to Kurt, who was born in nineteen thirty. And he was an upholsterer. He trained as a master upholsterer. He he was never prosperous. The the family always struggled for money, but they were cl- they were very close loving warm family they weren't they weren't very religious they they would go to synagogue just on special occasions your weddings things like that and as i said gustav thought of himself as austrian before he was jewish he was he was very strong on his jewish identity but he was austrian first and um, for people like gustav and his family the rise of the nazis was an incredible shock when when the nazis the nazis the sorry nazi germany took over austria in march 1938
0: may i ask a quick question so was it because the nazis had uh, like a, a puppet or was was it that the nazi party of austria got elected
1: uh, no it was uh, no it was quite a complicated situation um, the nazis had had yeah, and at a relatively low level had had quite a lot of, you know, the Nazis in Austria in the 1930s were in more or less the situation that the Nazis had been in, in Germany in the 1920s. They were a large group, quite an aggressive group, but they were fairly marginalized. Um, and the government in power in Austria at this time was, uh, uh they were the, the, uh, Austrian national party they were austro fascists the term is for they were essentially a fascist political party but unlike the nazis they were not anti-semitic so jews were relatively secure in austria at this point but hitler hitler saw austria as an, as a natural part of germany I mean, he was austrian born himself and he put enormous pressure on the austrian government to become part of Germany and the Austrians resisted. They were patriotic, they were independent. And it came to a head when the Austrian government decided to hold a referendum on Austrian independence. And there was a huge pro-independence campaign and it had huge popular support. And this just drove Hitler out of his mind with outrage. And he launched an invasion of Austria And the country was seized, and it was called the Anschluss, uh, the Joining, where Ah. Austria became, from that point on, the Ostmark, the eastern territory of Germany. And for the Jews of Austria, it was terrifying. because I mean, the Nazis had been in power in Germany for five years, and the Jews of Vienna and the rest of Austria got five years' worth of anti-Semitic persecution all crammed into the first few weeks of the nazi occupation
0: you mention the complicated immigration procedures both gustav and his wife try to take or was it his daughter
1: uh well yeah the the, the e, their eldest daughter edith who was edith her, yeah. yeah who was who was 19 by this point managed to get out with some help from her mother she managed to get a, uh, a work permit to come to england and she, she got a job in an English city uh, working as a, a, a housemaid for a Jewish family in the north of England. But that left Tini and Gustav with still with their three children, Fritz, their daughter, Herta, and their little boy, Kurt. And, I mean, they did simply didn't have the money to be able to emigrate as a family. It was fantastically expensive just to travel. You had to get guarantors in the country you wanted to go to.
0: Oh, so you had to have people who you knew very well or were related to before you were allowed.
1: Yeah, I mean for example, the only one of her children that Teeny managed to get out of Austria was the little boy Kurt. And Teeny had a, a had relatives in the United States who had emigrated some years before. And she managed to connect with a very influential Jewish family in Massachusetts called the Barnett's and judge Barnett judge Samuel Barnett offered to have Kurt you know to take Kurt in and he would also he was also willing to take Herter as well and he would put up the guarantee money you know that that he would guarantee to look after them and uh, this was all arranged but only Kurt got out because the channel for Jews to get out of Germany and Austria, to America was squeezed tight at both ends. The Nazis squeezed it tight at their end. Even though they wanted to get rid of Jews, they wanted Jews removed from Austria and Germany, they couldn't help but make it as cruel and unnecessarily bureaucratic as possible. They extorted money out of them. They gave them permits that rapidly expired and had to be renewed. So the People kept having to go through the process over and over again. And at the US State Department end, they had a nominal number of Jewish refugees that they could take per year, and they reduced that. They, they took only sometimes as little as a quarter of that number that they were allowed to take. And there was actually a memo sent out to US consulates in Germany are telling them, telling consular staff to use every tactic they could think of to delay people's applications. Because the situation in America was also complicated. The Democratic administration under FDR wanted to let Jews into America. They wanted to let in as many as America could hold. But there was huge opposition from the right wing, from conservatives, from the U.S. press and from the public. Um, and the kinds of and it was really shocking to me researching this because, for both Britain and America, th- th- exactly the same things were said about Jewish refugees then, as are said about predominantly Muslim refugees now. There was hostility to them. It, there were things that were said about them that that they were they would they wouldn't integrate. <laughs> they were a burden. <laughs> they were a burden on society. Yeah, they kept in their own little cliquey group, and they were they were a threat to the American way of life. And as the, exactly the same things were said in Britain, which is why you know only a tiny, tiny fraction of the refugees that those countries could have taken were actually able to emigrate.
0: Wow! In your book, you mention like the events happening really quickly as soon as the Anschluss happened. So in in a matter of few weeks, uh, Gustav found himself in Buchenwald. Or was it a longer time period?
1: Uh, That that actually took a while. Um, Gustav's war service in the First World War actually did help him a little bit to begin with. Uh, I mean, the persecution started right away. I mean, Gustav lost his business. His daughters lost their jobs. Uh, both his daughters were persecuted in the streets. They were subjected to Jew-baiting. Jews all over the city were snatched and forced to scrub the pavements and the roads, uh, surrounded by jeering, heckling crowds. And this happened to Edith, and probably what triggered her, wanting to get out as quickly as possible. Uh, both, both Both the boys, Kurt and Fritz, lost their places at school, yeah, they couldn't get work. They were you know, very quickly banned from all public places, parks, sports places, you know, entertainment venues, anywhere like that. Um, and and then in November 1938, Kristallnacht happened. Uh, in Paris, a German diplomat was assassinated by uh, a Polish Jew. And this was used as a pretext to unleash this huge wave of violence against Jews all across Germany and Austria. Synagogues were smashed up and burned. Jewish businesses were smashed. And and thousands upon thousands of Jewish men were rounded up. And Gustav and Fritz, the the teenage Fritz, who was at this point uh, 15 years old, they were among thousands of Jewish men rounded up in Vienna and crammed into a, a police station. In the city to await processing. Most of those men eventually ended up in Dachau concentration camp. Gustav and Fritz were let go on that occasion, Be- Fritz because he was so young, and Gustav because an Austrian policeman spoke up for him and point and and mentioned that he was a, a decorated war veteran. And at that point, that was enough. But a year later, In 1939, when Jews were rounded up, Jewish men were rounded up again, that no longer was a way out for the. If you were picked up by the Nazis, Um, Jewish men, middle aged Jewish men, would produce their war medals and just have them dashed to the floor. And Nazi officials would say, Don't show us that Habsburg shit. Oh, bye. It was considered worthless. So at that point, they they were sent off to Buchenwald. It, I mean, initially, the, the SS came to take just Gustav, and, but, he, but he was out of the house at the time. So they took Fritz and said, we'll let the boy go if Gustav hands himself in. But they didn't. They didn't let Fritz go, and they were both sent to Buchenwald.
0: In your book, you mentioned this one uh, detail. I, I'm just going to read it because uh, most people don't know about this. It says the huge camp was surrounded by a barbed wire fence with 22 watchtowers at intervals decked with floodlights and machine guns. The fence was 10 feet high and electrified with the lethal mm-hmm. 380 volts running through it. So that really hit me because I did not realize that even like touching the fence could end up killing people.
1: Yeah, there, there have been a number of sort of popular myths about. Grown up around the Holocaust in fiction, uh, where you've had you know, imaginary scenarios where people outside the camp have met up, you know, got to know prisoners inside the camp.
0: I know the movie you're talking about,
1: through the wire, but this was actually absolutely impossible. There was a dead zone. I mean, not only was the fence as as you described just there, and it, um, it was there was a dead zone inside and outside the fence that was constantly patrolled by SS guards. And anyone's just so much as stepping on that dead zone would be shot immediately. It was, it was, they were just, once they were, you were inside that camp, there was no way out except either back out through the gate or through the chimney of the crematorium.
0: Oh my, from what I know, there's only been one instance. And that was because the man, Uh, Sobibor um, and that was because the man was like uh, like an elite elite specially trained like force from the Soviets who had lots of military training. But other than that, yeah, there has never been. And So, yes, I I completely agree with what you mean by a lot of popular fiction and movies. Um, But um, so they first went to Buchenwald and it seems like they did a lot of cruel things like they took away their clothes. Um, and then they were fingerprinted and they had to just like wooden bear, not not barrels, wooden, uh, they had to sleep on wood instead of like beds. And around this time, Gustav starts keeping his diary, right?
1: Yeah. Um, well, he wrote his first entry in, in the diary on 2nd of October, 1939, which was the day he arrived in Buchenwald, um. And I say he, he kept that diary up. It's not—it's not a detailed day-by-day diary. It's—it's mm-hmm. it's very patchy, and it's—it's it's, the physical diary itself, is just a, a very small pocket-sized notebook, you know. Which you know he kept—he kept, he kept record—he kept recording his experiences in all the way through to summer 1945, when he was making his way back across Germany, heading back home to Vienna.
0: That's six so years. I, yeah
1: so so I mean, the, the, the period that that covers and the fact that this was just a little pocket notebook gives you an idea of how that it's it's not that detailed he mainly focused on really outstanding events and you know rec- setting down occasionally his thoughts and and the, and the events that he notes down are so sketchily written as I said that they had to this was the, really the core of my research was just going through it word by word, line by line, making sense of Gustav's diary, you know, filling in all the details.
0: Were there records from the Nazi end to uh, kind of corroborate this? Or how did you end up filling these details?
1: Uh, well, there are a whole variety of sources. I mean, Fritz left behind a short memory. When he published his father's diary in the 90s, he, he wrote a short memoir to go with it. Uh, but again, that's also got a lot of gaps because that's just selected memories. And he Fritz had also recorded recorded a number of interviews. So I had that. I tracked down Kurt, who was the last surviving uh, family member from that time. Uh, he's, he's the one
0: who ended up in the U.S., right?
1: Yes, he he's still still alive and living in uh, in uh, New Jersey, and um, and I had spent many many hours interviewing him, yeah, about their life in vienna before and under uh, under nazi uh, under the nazi regime um, there also there, there are official documents ss documents uh for instance their record cards from buchenwald which, uh, which were, were filled in when the prisoners arrived and noted down you know any any property that had been taken off them i mean it's quite it's quite a, a little touching detail that you have know, f- that Gustav had taken off him a little parcel with spare socks and underwear in it and I think a spare sweater that I, I imagine you know, his wife just throwing together for him as he was being dragged out of the apartment and being pressed into his hands that was all taken off him it records all these details, it's the same card for Fritz and then their transfer to Auschwitz later It's it, all, all of this bureaucracy and little hospital records from the Auschwitz infirmary, things like that, recording both Fritz and Gustav spending time in there and narrowly escaping death in that situation. But those records are extremely spartan. They just just give you pinpointed dates and places, really. I also managed to find other Uh, witness evidence that had been written down and in some cases published. Um, For instance, some some of the incidents that Gustav mentions and very briefly narrates in his diary, I managed to find written down and, as I say, in some cases published, uh, accounts by other men who saw those same incidents. And I was able to piece together a full account you know instances of prisoners being murdered by the SS guards or accidents happening in the camp.
0: Um, you mentioned this extremely sadistic guard named Johann Blanc. Yeah. Um, can you just talk a little bit about him, too, just so that people can get how sadistic it is? <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, I'm most most of the camp SS guards were mostly. You have to really accept they were just normal guys, really. Mm-hmm. they were they went along with the things what they went along with what was going on the way guys generally do you know they they just keep quiet and go along with it but there were a sm- relatively small number who were real vicious psychopathic individuals and sergeant blank ss sergeant blank was one of them he was a Part, one of his responsibilities was being partly in charge of the, com- the, the Jewish compound, quarantine compound in the main part of the camp. And another part was o- as was uh, overseeing the the SS sentries in the quarry. I should say that the concentration camp complex at Buchenwald was more than just the barbed wire fenced-in camp. That was just a way of containing the prisoners. It was a huge SS complex. Eventually, there were factories, massive SS barracks, and a huge stone quarry. And most of the prisoners were put to work in the stone quarry. And the place was surrounded by a line of sentries. And a favorite game for the SS guards under Blank and other sergeants was to force prisoners to run through the sentry line. You would, for instance, snatch a prisoner's hat off his head and throw it across the line and order him to go and get it. And as soon as he ran across the line, if he was naive enough to not know what was about to happen, he would be shot as soon as he crossed the line. Oh, wow. And, and that, that which is, of course, is why they did it. They, they forced prisons to run th- across the line so they'd be shot. And they actually ran uh, a rewards scheme for the guards who shot the most prisoners. Mm. If you accumulated enough points, you could get uh, time time off. You could get other benefits. Yikes. And blanks, Blank was what, another, another thing Blank liked to do was stand up on a piece of high ground above the entrance to the quarry and throw rocks down on prisoners, huge rocks, You know, prisoners coming in and out of the quarry. And the thing he did specifically to Fritz Kleinman was subject him to a beating. With a few weeks after they arrived in Buchenwald, there was in Munich there was an attempt on Hitler's life. It was an attempted assassination.
0: Oh yeah, we George uh, uh, Jorg, il, il, we actually wrote an article about that. Um, I'll put it on the link.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it was. It took place in, in the the Keller in, in Munich. It was an attempted by bomb. And it failed, but there were reprisals against. And of course, because even though the, the 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 would-be assassin was not Jewish, he had nothing to do he, with he was a Jewish people. Yeah, and um, he was an anti-Nazi. Of course, the Nazis blamed Jews, and there were reprisals against Jewish prisoners in concentration camps across Germany. In Buchenwald, Sergeant Blank called as a number of a number of prisoners were taken down to the quarry and shot. And Sergeant Blank randomly picked out, I think, about 20, 21 Jewish prisoners to be whipped, and Fritz was one of those. And at this point, he's only 16 years old. And that involved being being tied to a special wooden bench called the Bok, and then being whipped with a bullwhip, about, 20, 20, I think, 25 lashes. And the victim would be barely able to stand and the the, the, the <laughs> topping off the cruelty of that was that the prisoner had to call out the number of lashes, and that if he lost his place, the whole process would start again Jesus. from one and as I say as I said, Fritz Fritz, aged only sixteen, was subjected to this in front of his father, in front of all you know the hundreds of men who were you know paraded to watch this. And uh, as I say, those men like Blank were in quite a small minority, but they effectively set the tone of how the concentration camps were run.
0: And then it seems like Gustav got sick and basically the Nazis deprived all of them from food. But Fritz has this astonishing act of courage where he goes to one of the commanders to appeal for them. And- yeah,
1: he, was, he was incredibly brave. He and, he and another teenage friend got together and approached one of the doctors you know, begging for food. And he happened to be, this doctor happened to be just you know kind hearted enough to give them food. And then he subsequently insisted on the Jewish prisoners being put into the main camp with the other prisoners because the conditions Jews were being kept in at that one point were incredibly insanitary and a huge proportion of them were falling sick and many dying. Yeah, Fritz's courage was absolutely extraordinary. Really, nothing ever seemed to intimidate him. I mean, even after he he, he got involved in prisoner resistance in Auschwitz and involved in planning escapes, and even after he'd been caught doing that and tortured nearly to death, he still went on doing it. Nothing ever intimidated him.
0: So how did they end up from Buchenwald to Auschwitz?
1: Uh, well, I mean, this is, this is the core of the book. This is why I felt that Fritz and Gustav's story was such an important one to tell. That in 1942, early 1942, the Nazis began the final solution, the, the final destruction of the Jews. And part of that was that all Jews who were in concentration camps on german soil were to be moved out to camps that were on in the in the occupied territories and of course auschwitz in occupied poland was the key one and 400 of the surviving jewish prisoners in buchmel were scheduled for transport to auschwitz and gustav's name was on that list and and they knew perfectly well that a transfer to Auschwitz was a death sentence. And they knew what went on there through the prison a Grapevine. Fritz Fritz was spared because by that point, he had he had trained inside the camp to be a, uh, a builder. He was a skilled bricklayer and his labor was needed for a construction of, a, of an armaments factory attached to the camp. But he was so so distraught at the idea of being separated from his father and this is after his mother and sister had been deported to the east and he could guess what would have happened to them yes um he he just couldn't bear the heat and he wanted to he chose to go with his father and his friends tried to try to persuade him not to and they, they said you know if you want to go on living you have to forget your father you know but that would be, that was just impossible for fritz he and he would prefer to die with his father than live on without him. So he went to the SS, and he applied, and his name was put on the list, and he was put in the segregation barrack where all the doomed men were being held, and he was reunited with his father, and they went on the transport together. And A measure of how certain it was that they were going to death they were going to Auschwitz to be killed, was that even within that concentration camp, their departure was quite solemn. They were marched from the camp to the train station, and there was silence in the camp, even from the SS. There was quite a solemn silence, like they were going, like it was a funeral. And and Fritz went voluntarily, and as I said, I said about his, his incredible courage, and that was the absolute exemplar of that. What an incredible boy. He was still a boy at that point, but he he knew what he was doing.
0: Enjoying the interview? Subscribe
1: to our Substack at historically.substack.com to check out other episodes of the podcast, our newsletter, and find out how to catch our live streams on Twitch and YouTube. That's historically.substack.com.
0: Do you need the perfect follow-up to Catterday? Learn more about our feline friend and
1: revolutionary, Vladimir Ilyich Yulinov, on Twitch by tuning in to our Sundays with Lenin on twitch.tv forward slash historically. That's twitch.tv forward slash historically.
0: Okay, I'm going to ask you about things that um, most people wouldn't know about, but I, I learned from your book. Can you talk about the Buchenwald song? Yeah,
1: you know, it was it was written by a couple of Jewish composers who were imprisoned in Buchenwald, and it was just all about you know life in the camp, and essentially it was a song of kind of resistance, you know, sort of a you know a re- refusing to be ground down by the Nazis, but it was quite subtly worded so the nazis never got that that was what it was about it sounded as though it was a song about being proud to be in buchenwald and the prisoners sang it on their way you know when they were marched out of the main camp to the quarry to their work details they would sing the buchenwald song and they sang it on parades when they were forced to sing and as I say, the SS in the camp never realized that it was essentially a song of resistance.
0: That's amazing. One thing you also mentioned that I didn't quite know is that they actually kept statistics about each person's productivity.
1: It wasn't so much uh, that they were keeping. I mean, the, the, le, the level of deta- record keeping was pretty detailed mm-hmm. in the camps, but their recognition of individuals tended to be quite hazy. And there would be, I mean, mean, the notice of prisoners and what our productivity would mainly be taken notice of on the ground. You know, I mean, the capos and SS guards would keep, you know, I mean, they were under the whip constantly, the workers, and so it was workers who were perceived to be becoming useless if they were becoming weak or if they were sick, then as, as the as the regime progressed they would be uh, exterminated. I mean they experimented with lethal injections in Buchenwald and eventually towards the, the later period in Auschwitz they were sent to gas chambers. but yeah if, if you if you didn't contribute you know, to, to the labor force, in some way insufficiently you would be you would risk you would be graded as being a useless mouth and be murdered
0: and it seems like fritz was very charming and he even managed to get some praise from some of the guards because of
1: yeah fritz's initiative his courage and his skill was really the reason why the 400 jewish men from buchenwald were not actually murdered when they arrived they were put into a kind of holding for eight days before there was a selection held, and Fritz couldn't stand the waiting, so he approached an SS sergeant and said, you know, we're skilled builders, and we're useful. And initially, this sergeant just didn't believe in the idea of a Jewish bricklayer, but he gave Fritz the opportunity to prove his ability, which he did. And when the selection duly happened, yeah they were paraded along with you know, hundreds and hundreds of other Jewish new arrivals from other concentration camps. Most of those people were subsequently marched off to the gas chambers, and whereas the four hundred men from Buchenwald were marched off to help build a new subcamp. And oh. it, it's it, it is it is arguable that I mean they still had to pass a physical selection and it was miraculous that Gustav got through it because he was over over fifty years old by that point. But it it, it is arguable that it was largely Fritz's intervention that saved those four hundred men's lives. I say saved their lives, save them, gave them a temporary reprieve because Auschwitz, Monowitz, the camp they had to build and then live in was just as lethal a place as anywhere else in Auschwitz. And most of those men were dead within a few weeks of arriving, worked to death, starved to death, beaten to death, shot.
0: Just curious, during all this time, did Gustav and Fritz know about anyone else? Like their, their mom, wife, their other kids? brothers and sisters, or was it just like,
1: um, um up, up to a point they did know. Um, this is, this is something that actually surprised me because I mean, I was by no means an expert on the Holocaust when I started that I just knew the, you know, the main facts that everyone knows. So I was astonished that in the first few years in the camps, the prisoners were allowed to send and receive mail to, the, to their families. And um, they were, they were extremely limited what they could send. They could only send a sort of form, that the SS provided them with, and they couldn't put anything in there about the truth of what the camps were like. They were just they could just say I'm alive and well and I'm okay. And, but they could receive letters and they could receive money and you know spare bits of clothing. Um, Tini, teeny, teeny back in Vienna, Gustav's wife uh, scraped together what little bits of money she could and sent them to Gustav, uh, so spare, spare underwear, things like that. And, and that, so, so Gustav, of course, they knew that Edith had got out to uh, England early in 1939, and then they knew that uh, Kurt had gone to America, because that, that happened in early 1941. But then, as soon as America joined the war, uh, you know, effectively everything was cut off. And then, when the final solution started, there was no communication. The last Fritz and Gustav heard of Tini and uh, Herta was in June 1942, when Fritz heard from a friend who worked in the camp office that they had received word that Tini and Herta were being deported to the East, along with thousands of other Jewish women, children, and older men. And Fritz, Fritz, Fritz they There was that was all that was. They were told that they had been deported, but Fritz. I mean, they knew the asset. They knew the Nazis well enough by that point to guess that nothing good was going to come of that. That they were most likely, they were likely to never see them again. But that that was the last they heard until 1945.
0: I've read other books. Um, there was one written by a French priest, and it's not surprising, but it's interesting that. The first place that they took Tina and Herta was actually at an elementary school
1: <laughs> yeah yeah there, there was a, a, an elementary school in the district they lived in in Vienna it was the, it was the, the school that all the Kleinman children had been to as as kids um yeah it, it was it, under the Nazis it was converted you near know, well from 19 you know, early 1942 it was converted into a sort of holding pen. What happened to Tini and Hurt was the same as what happened to other, hundreds of other, mostly women by this time, because most of the men had been sent off to the camps, were sent a summons you know, to report to this place. And they, they were allowed to take some luggage and mm-hmm. they were encouraged to take things like tools and the kind of equipment that would be used to make a settlement. Um, and they could take up to a certain amount of money. And they were summoned to this school, which was now an SS holding pen. And they were held there until they had accumulated a certain number, around 900 people or so, 900,000 people. And then from there, they would be loaded onto trucks. And they were driven to one of Vienna's railway stations and loaded on trains.
0: And it seems like they were sent somewhere like Belarus or like...
1: It was Belarus that... um, uh, (laughs) At first, yes. at first, they really thought that they were just being resettled because oh, the God. trains they were loaded onto in Vienna were regular passenger trains, uh, comfortable passenger trains, and the people organizing it on the ground were men from the Israelitische Kultusgemeinde, you know, the Jewish cultural administration in Vienna. Oh God! Um, uh, but as when, when they got, they went through Poland into Belarus and the, and to Minsk. And they were unloaded into cattle cars. They were at gunpoint, Mm. brutally treated, and eventually they were taken to this place called Malitrosjanets on the outskirts of Minsk, which was a death camp. And they didn't even, they never even saw the inside of the camp. They were just taken in trucks to this pine plantation (sighs) and murdered en masse. They were all shot, or most were shot, and some were gassed.
0: In the eastern camp. A lot of it was bullets, yeah. shovels. I, I can't remember the name. It's called Death by Bullets, but I can't remember the name of the author. And the it was like actually very gross reading that.
1: Did it it had a, it had a negative effect on the SS that were doing it. In fact, part of the reason why the Nazis developed gas chambers as their main methods of extermination was to make the process more humane for the SS. As, as it was, uh, the, the mass executions that were carried out on the Eastern Front were usually by pistol. Mm-hmm. They, they, you know The individual prisoners would be shot with a pistol in the back of the head. Um, so it was a sort of kind of a long drawn out process. And the SS doing it were usually drunk because it, did, it had a, a, a traumatic effect on the, the murderers themselves. This was part of the reason, a big part of the reason why the SS developed gas chambers to make the whole, to make the process of mass murder more humane for the murderers, basically.
0: To sterilize it. Yeah. It's really amazing to see that Fritz has so much life and is so, uh, like he's, he's, he's able to keep hope for everyone around him throughout the camp regardless and it seems like he had a very strong personality so what happened to him after the nazis were defeated like where did he go where did he end up
1: um well i'm like after i mean the book tells how he ended up. Eventually, tried to escape. He eventually ended up in Mount House and was liberated by the Americans. Made it back to Vienna. Eventually, was reunited in Vienna with his father. Oh, that's he, great. He could never really adapt. Back, he never. It was an incredible struggle for him to adapt. His. His personality was more like his mother's and less like his father's. Gustav got through also, Gustav was also in a man of incredible courage and grit and determination and self-belief. Even, even in the last few weeks of the war, when people were dying around him in thousands, he was still writing in his diary. I will not be ground down by this. I will survive. I won't let the SS murderers beat me. But he was, he was also, he was, he was, very able to assimilate terrible things. After he came home to Vienna, he put, the, he put the Holocaust pretty much behind him. He'd already done that with the First World War and he reassimilated quite quickly back into life in Vienna. Fritz couldn't do that. He was a much more volatile, angrier temperament. He was furious about what had been done to him and his family and he could never put it behind him. So he had trouble adjusting psychologically. There was there were still people in their neighbourhood who had betrayed them to the Nazis. Oh, nice! They, betra- they were betrayed by their friends and neighbours, <sighs> and they was, those people were still some of, or at least some of those people were still living in the neighbourhood when Fritz and Gustav came back there, and they had no comprehension of the of the enormity of what they had done. They they actually one of the things that I just struggle to get to get my head around is the fact that they these people complained to Gustav that Fritz wouldn't speak to them. He wouldn't say hello to them. They couldn't understand. These people who had sent (laughs) Gustav and Fritz to the concentration camps couldn't understand why Fritz wouldn't be friendly or at least be civil to them. They had no idea of what they had done, that they had done anything really wrong.
0: Or were in
1: denial. Fritz was actually involved in beating up. uh, I don't know. It's not clear whether he did it just by himself or whether he was involved in it. There was a a local young man who had been in the Vienna SS, a really committed Nazi. Mm -hmm. And after after the war, Fritz was in in, implicated in beating this guy up, and the police arrested him. But uh, at this point, the Soviets were in charge of they were occupying Vienna and were running the administration. And as far as the Soviets were concerned, you know, they were, they were perfectly in favor with uh, summary justice for Nazis. So Fritz was just let off. Yeah. You know, but that anger never left, never really left him. I mean, he, he got married very quickly. He he married in November, 1945, a few months after he'd left the camps, there's a wedding photo, and he still looks half-starved, and he looks quite ill. Um, And he and his wife tried settling in Israel soon after the state of Israel was first founded. They tried emigrating there. But, yeah, at that, well. They
0: didn't like it? it,
1: it, Well, this has always been the case in Israel, and it certainly was then, that, you know. You have to do a certain a period of compulsory military service in the Israeli mm-hmm. army, and at that point, Israel was fighting for its existence. Mm-hmm. They were at war, and Fritz, after he was really suffering badly with PTSD from his times time in the in the camps, and he couldn't stand it, so he just served out his absolute minimum military service period, and then they he, they went back to Vienna, and his his marriage fell apart i think not that long after that and um, he, he 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 struggled to find you know a steady career as well and he, the the torture he had uh, been he'd suffered in auschwitz had left him with permanent injuries so he had to retire when he was only in his 50s because of these injuries it, it damaged him in a way that it didn't really damage his father uh-huh. you know part uh, it, partly because of the different personalities, partly I think maybe because you know Fritz was growing up. I mean, he was only a boy when he was first sent to the camps, so he grew to manhood in the camps, and it was all <laughs> the adult life he had known. So it was it just completely messed him up.
0: But before we wrap up, I just have a quick question: like, what are you working on for the future? Like, a, are there any any other um,
1: projects? Well, I'm I'm still very much. Involved with this story, I'm this story has not left me alone, and I, I, <laughs> I have, I haven't left it alone. I, you always want it to be heard by more and more people, you know, as many people as possible. I'm I, at the moment. I'm involved in developing uh, a film based on the book. Uh, oh. it's yeah. The book has been optioned by a by a production company, and we're in the process. I'm I'm attached as a consultant and I'm involved in the writing, so. Hopefully, that will get off the ground at some point. And books—I've got—I've got got a number of books that you know potential on the table, but but the pandemic has effectively curtailed my ability to work on new books because it shut down so many (laughs) you know research institutions, you know, archives and libraries, and things. I can't travel.
0: Oh yes. So Um... so
1: all those potential book projects have had to be put on ice for for the time being. I'm, I do have other, I'm I'm still just spending a lot of my time you know, work, working to spread the story of the boy who followed his father into Auschwitz as, as by telling it in different ways. And I, I want the, you know, the story to be read and heard by as many people as possible.
0: Oh, we're going to put a link in the description box. And your agent, Andrew Lowney, he keeps sending us really good guests to interviews. He's an amazing agent because he's very persistent too. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, he's he's got a real knack for picking out historical store authors with really great historical stories. He's got some yes. fantastic ones. yeah,
0: oh, by the way, are you on social media? How would people find you and your work?
1: yeah, i'm I'm on twitter at at Jeremy Dronefield and Facebook at also just Jeremy Dronefield.
0: Okay. So I'll tell them that. And I'll also put a link in the description box. For me, it was emotionally hard to read. Because there was so much agony and cruelty, but it is also very informative and important for people to read.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the most amazing story that I have ever come across you know, in my career as a writer. And I, I, as far as I'm aware, it's absolutely, all, all Holocaust stories are remarkable. But this one is, as far as I'm aware, absolutely unique. I've never come across anything quite like it.
0: Especially the personalities and yeah. the details. That is what's um things you wouldn't know.
1: Yeah. Like and the I'm, casual I'm, cruelty. And for me it's it's kind of it's been an honor and a privilege to be, you know, for for the, the, the family and you know, have entrusted me with telling this story. Is it's it's, it's a kind of a responsibility but also a privilege.
0: Oh yeah, you told me you have spoken with Kurt.
1: Um, yeah, and um, Kurt is the last surviving member of the, the wartime family, mm-hmm. but they're a very large extended family now in America. There's still a, a Viennese branch, Kurt's son, um, um, Fritz's son still lives there. Um, the Kleinman fat extended family in America is very large and flourishing. Um, Kurt had three sons, Edith, e- I mean, Edith, the one who, s- who settled in England originally, she and her husband... Uh, immigrated to the United States in 1948 and she they had two children and there are many many grandchildren and great grandchildren they are a very large family and, and all still very close to each other
0: that's excellent um so i'm glad that you are were able to give them like this book. and um- yeah Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, What usually happens is that uh, it usually within like we, uh, Robert edits the episode and then within a few weeks we air it, I mean, not air it, but we release it and uh, I'll let you know and you can, and and if you have an excerpt you want to put in or anything, um, let us know and I'll send you like examples of what we did with other authors so that um we, c- we can make sure that more people read the book
1: <laughs> okay great thank you
0: and please do come again and uh, this was a very it was a pleasure interviewing us so hope interviewing you so hopefully we'll have you back again one of these days
1: great i'll, I'll look forward to it okay well thank you thank you bye-bye then
0: bye Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.